You're listening to the 2023 Central Texas Men's Conference. Learn more at centraltexasmc.com. Here's Peter Reed. Good morning. One of the things that I put on my evaluation form was extend the conference. Just add another day or two. This has been fantastic. Thank you for those of you who came, came up and shared out of life. It's so encouraging for me to hear what God does in an in individual life and how he manifests the presence of Christ. And uh, again, from my side, it's just been a privilege for me to be here this weekend. We're going to look this morning at God's measure of success. And we're going to take a look at this, first of all, from Isaiah chapter 6 and then Acts chapter 8. So if you have a Bible and want to turn there, that's where we're going to be. And I want to begin reading in Isaiah 6. Before I do that, somebody came up to me last night, in fact, more than one, and said, you know, you read something at the end of your message last night. Could I get of it or who wrote it? I, my setting is, I'll send it to Charles. And, and if you'd like to have a copy of that, he has the copy. And uh, I would invite you to do so. Isaiah chapter 6, I'm going to read the 4 to start with. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood up, having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory, and the fence of the thresholds trembled. At the voice of him who called out while the temple was being filled with smoke. From a reference out of John chapter 12 and verse 41, we know that it was Jesus on the throne who saw. And this was very important for him. It's very important for us to know. Uzziah was a godly king. And this was a time of national crisis. Not on an in level, but on a corporate level. And that's when God is gracious enough to give him this vision of Christ seated on the throne. You know, speaking to the king of Babylon, who had had a vision, and Daniel is called to come and interpret the vision. Daniel said to the king of Babylon this, in Daniel chapter 4 and 25, He said, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field, and you grass to eat like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, stows it on whomever he wishes. That's good to know in these days in which we live. That nations and the rulers of this world don't have the last word. But the Most is from heaven in the affairs of men. And he has proven that, and we have the history of that, much of it in the Old Testament. 
And we can take much confidence and much comfort from the fact that Jesus is still on the throne. And he is the King of Kings and he is the Lord of Lords. And he has revealed to us in the scriptures that everything that looks so chaotic right now, he's going to have the last word and lead things in particular for his people to a better tomorrow. This was also one of those times when things were in transition. And this is a huge topic for me in my position. In any organization is a challenge. And one of the ways by which God guides transition is this way. He allows the old to die in order that something can begin. Is that his way every time? No, but sometimes that's his way. And when God says it's time to go so that somebody can begin, he does that. That throughout the the Old Testament and he did it here. And it teaches me that sometimes I've got to have the guts to allow something to die instead of feeling obligated to keep something alive that God says, and I'm going to begin something new. Sometimes that's his way. And it's tough with a person like Uzziah the king who was godly. And sometimes one of the toughest things in the Christian life, let go of the good. And to leave the good behind in the past because God has something, got something better in mind. I find these things a challenge. It also shows me that being a godly king, that no man is indispensable to God. But God is always indispensable to any man. At this time in my life, the men and women of God that I wish were around me, they aren't. And what it's doing is it is driving me to depend upon Jesus in a new way. And that is a blessing in disguise. Let's read on. In Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5, Isaiah has this vision of the Lord on the throne, and then he said this in response. Verse 5, then I, woe is me, I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The seraphim flew to me with a burning coal, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth. And said, behold, this has touched your lips and your, lips, uh, your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Sometimes, you know, we songs and there are phrases like, oh Lord, I want to see you. I read a passage like this and I say to myself, I'm not so sure. Because every revelation of the living God, we're going to have a revelation of ourselves by comparison. And you look in the scriptures of the responses of those who got close to the Almighty. They said things like, woe is me. They said things like, I retreat in in sackcloth and ashes. They said things like Peter in, in Luke chapter 5, Lord go, Lord, go away from me, for I am a sinful. They fell on their face like John at Patmos. Five times in Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah said, woe are you. 
And now he's, woe is me. Again, because every we get of the living Lord, we get a revelation of ourselves in comparison. But when that, I just want to encourage somebody and say this. Sometimes the very sign that we are getting closer to Jesus relationally, some very sign that his presence has been revealed to us is this deep sense of our own desperation and our own depravity. Don't let that fool you. That very sign is giving you a new revelation of himself. I brought another quote from A.W. Tozer, who I like. And he said this, The meek man is not a house afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. He has stopped being fooled about himself and he has accepted God's estimate of his own life. And there's a sense in which Isaiah, we will, we will minister and serve him more powerfully out of our weakness than in any other place. And we will serve him out of grace. And this man who wrecked, he had a dirty mouth, became a preacher. Because God let him know, it's me and not you. And anyone who serves the Lord in any capacity, and I know that there are a number of this, this room this morning who do, we do so by grace alone. We are the undeserving servants of God who live realizing that the one who needs revival is me. When I was in college, I came across a book and the title intrigued me. The title was My Greatest Moment with God. I opened the cover of that book and saw names like Watchman Nee and Andrew Murray and Hudson Taylor and Amy Carmichael and Oswald Chambers. And among the names listed there was the name Alan Redpath. Alan Redpath the former pastor at Moody Memorial Church in Chicago. He later on went to Edinburgh and he became pastor of Charlotte Baptist Chapel. And after the event that I'm going to this morning, he was then invited by Major Thomas to, enjoy, to join the staff at Cape and Ray Hall in England. And he was a wonderful, godly dean of students. I never knew him personally. I heard him preach before he went to be with the Lord. There's a book back at the table, The Making of a Man of God, The Life of David, and that is its preaching series that he did while he was a pastor. But I wanted to know what this man of God, what his, what his greatest moment with God was. And he actually wrote about it and his greatest moment, he said, was after he had a stroke, after he short, or shortly after he entered the pastorate at Charlotte Baptist Chapel in Edinburgh. He described that experience in this way. As diagnosed stroke, the doctor made the, 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 the um, evaluation, and then Alan Redpath said this, I quote, he said, medically, therefore, I knew the worst and was left to go through the slow process of... 
In a condition of this kind, one's inner defenses are knocked down physically, mentally, and spiritually. I was reduced to childhood. Physically, I could only walk with difficulty. Mentally, I found it impossible to trade or think clearly. Spiritually, I found that I could not pray or read my Bible. It was indeed a dark, grim experience. I confess that my reactions to the illness were not the most spiritual. We often say from the pulpit, we ask why in such an experience, only what? Not why had God allowed this, but what lessons can I learn from it? Now, I love this. I'm afraid I found myself asking why very often. Why had God allowed to me in the midst of a busy life and so early in a new pastorate when God was giving, uh, uh, excuse me, why had God allowed this to happen to me in the busy life and so early in a new pastorate when he was apparently giving real blessing and the church was filled each Sunday? These and other questions constantly entered my mind and I sank into depths of despair beyond description. For days I could do nothing but weep. At this time, somebody wrote to me saying that if only I had, I could be healed immediately. I must confess that such comments gave me little comfort. I didn't question God's ability to work a miracle in this dramatic way, but there came into my mind the question, do I have any right to expect him to reverse the laws of nature which he himself created simply for my benefit? I found myself being attacked by such tremendous temptation, such as I had not known for 20 years or more. It seemed like the devil took advantage to throw everything that he had at me. Sinful thoughts, temptation to sexual impurity, and bad language were all the shattering experiences of those days. My wife and family suffered from having a husband and a father who had reverted to childhood. After weeks of darkness and complete despair, I remember one day crying out to God, Oh Lord, deliver me from this attack of the devil and take me right home. I'd rather be in heaven than stay here any longer and know that the last memory you would have of me would be of, like, uh, be of a man living like a cabbage. So please get me out of this situation. It was then for the first time in months that it seemed that the Lord drew very near to me although he was time, even if I was unconscious of the fact. I had no vision of him nor any dramatic touch of healing, but I do know that a deep conviction came into my heart in which he said this. You have this all wrong. The devil has nothing whatever to do with it. It's me, your savior, who has brought this experience into your life to show you two things. First, This is the kind of person with all your sinful you thought were things of the past, but you always will be, but for my grace. I never intended to make you a better man. In the second place, I want to replace you with myself if you will allow me to be God in you and to admit that you are a complete failure and that the only good thing about Alan Redpath is Jesus. That, of course, was a truth that I had known in theory and indeed had preached for some years, but in experience. In Romans chapter 7 and verse 18, Scripture says, I know I am rotten through and through so far as my old sinful nature is concerned. No matter which way I turn, I can't make myself do right. I want to, but I can't. How that verse has lived in my life in a new way that day and ever since. A friend of mine who was the principal at Cape and Ray Hall, where, me, where Alan Redpath was on staff, this man personally, 
And when Dr. Redpath was in a hospital in Birmingham, England, my friend and his wife went to the hospital to visit him there shortly before he went to be with the Lord. And they went into his room and said he was almost, almost embarrassed to listen to Redpath bemoan the fact of sure Christian, how wicked his own heart was. They came and left his room, and that's the last time my friend saw Alan Redpath. And as he was walking by the nurse's station, he said goodbye, and the nurse, the nurse stopped him and said, you know that man in there? And he said, well, yes, we do. He's a close friend. He performed our wedding. And the nurse said, well, you know, it's very interesting, but every time I go into that man's room, I feel so clean in his presence. That's Jesus. Isaiah knew that. And many men and women of God have known that about themselves because the closer you get to Jesus, the more you realize who you are in comparison. And that may be a death blow to our ego, but it's one of the greatest blessings God can give to a person. In Isaiah chapter 6 and verses 8 to 10, we read, Then I heard the voice of the Lord, who said, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, And tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. I want to draw one truth out of this passage. And I have it on the PowerPoint right now. If you study scripture... Even the life of the Lord Jesus, you will come to realize that the people God used, he sent. And to be sent essentially means two things. It means, number one, someone else initiates activity in my life. And number two, it means someone else is responsible for that which they have initiated. So thankful for Charles's, uh, or Charlie's uh, testimony of this. Because the attitude that he verbalized is in many of our hearts. Well, I have my plans and I'm ready to initiate them and I'm going to ask the Lord to bless them. That's not what the Lord is interested in. He's in making my plans. He's interested in being the initiator and me being the the obedient responder. And the wonderful thing about the principle of being sent is this. If you're sent... The Lord is the initiator, and you're merely obeying the Lord's initiative in your own life. He takes the responsibility, and come hell or high water, if you're there because you're sent, he takes care of you, because you can always look over your shoulder and say, Lord, you got me here. I didn't initiate this. You did. So take care of me. So these past two years in our ministry, that was a good place to be. I didn't bring this pandemic upon Bodensdorf. I never asked to be the director of this center. 
And Lord, you're the one who has sustained this work all these years. You're going to have to do it again in a way that I have no clue as to how you're going to do it. You see, if I'm the initiator, I've got all rolling. And that is the cause of so much burnout today. We are being the initiators, of course, asking God to bless our initiative. And then find out he's not necessarily interested in blessing my... He wants me to be the responder to his initiative. He is the Lord of the harvest, not me. He is the head of the body, not me. And he has the prerogative to put me in the place of his choosing, whoever that may be, however long that may be, but that's his prerogative. And when I'm there out of obedience, he always carries the consequences of my obedience. So Peter, how does this work? Let me suggest two things. Number one, pray the prayer of Isaiah. Just come to him and say, Lord, hear my, send me. It may not mean a, a change in location. What we mean by that is, Lord, maybe I've been taking the initiative too much. Perhaps I've been asking you to bless my plans. Lord, I'm here. Send me into your plans. And we pray that. We get up at the beginning of the day and say, Lord, this is the day that you have made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Here am I, send me. And then you live evidence that as you commit your way to the Lord, he will direct your paths and he will take care of you where he sends you. And secondly, and this is one for me, Stop trying to take control of things that you don't have control over anyway. I love control. Probably drives those to me nuts. But if something is out of my control, it makes me feel insecure. It feels, makes me feel vulnerable. And that's why this principle is so, so important. Jesus, you, you are the one. Who calls the shots? I submit myself without reserve to you. And you leave things that you can't control anyway over to him. Other people's responses. The responsibility that rests on your shoulders and all of the circumstances accordingly. And you live in the confidence if something touched today, it first went by him first went by him. And even some of the things that are unpleasant, even some of the things that hurt, knows best. And if it reaches me, it first went by him. This is a Christian life. It's, it's very simple. Go where you're sent. Stay where you're put. Do as you're told. Repeat what you hear. And then leave when you're done. It's very simple. By the way, that last one is one of the most difficult. When done, thank you very much. We need to let go of our past. Go where you're sent. Stay where you're put. Do as you're told. Repeat what you hear. And then leave when you're done. In life. And... (laughs) 
at his commissioning, God says, your preaching is going to render the heart of this people insensitive, so there's going to be no positive results to your ministry. You must know that you're sent when you go into a ministry like that. And so Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, asks a very good question. Then I said, Lord, how long? <laughs> I would too. And he answered, until the cities are devastated and without it, houses are without people and the land is utterly desolate, and the Lord has removed men far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And that was the preview of his ministry. Isaiah, the effect of your preaching is that people are going to become insensitive to me. They're not going to respond positively to your message and things are going to go from bad to worse. Interesting phrase in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 37 where it says some were sawn in two. Some believe that that's referring to Isaiah who under a king named Manasseh who had Uzziah's son he had the longest reign and he was so displeased with the ministry of Isaiah he stuck him in a tree and sawed him in two. Historians say Isaiah preached for 60 years without results. What would we have done with Isaiah today if he was in our church? We would have said like, well, obviously, Isaiah, you do not have the spiritual gift of preaching. You're in the wrong place. Uh, Isaiah, you know, we've been enduring these negative reports for a long time. Then are you hiding? Uh, Isaiah, you know, everything okay at home? Uh, Isaiah, we're sorry, but we, we've got to discontinue our support for you. That's what we do with Isaiah today, because there was nothing positive to report to the missions committee. But he was sent. You see, the measure of success in the kingdom of being measured by our faithfulness. It's going to be measured by the fact that did we obey him who sent us? The results of that, that's not the measure of our success. If you read the life of Christ in the Gospels, if Jesus Christ was faced with a crowd, he was particularly unimpressed. And he normally did one of two things. He either avoided them or annoyed them with something he was unimpressive to Jesus. One day we'll get before him and he will see, well done, good and successful servant. No. <laughs> good and faithful servant. Even you, Isaiah. In the world's eye, you see you were a complete failure. In mine, you were a success. Because success is going to be measured by the size of your faithfulness to me. You were sent. Do as you're told. To repeat what you hear and leave when you're done. By the way, a lot is never a reason to change your message. A lack of results is never a reason to change your message, particularly for those who handle the Word of God. 
the response of others is not the reason why you change your, change your message because God says, I want you to say this today. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12, it specifically says that the Old Testament prophets came to realize, told them, you're serving a future generation. And so Isaiah was aware of this, so he kept preaching, never uh, changed his message. And there's a very definite place in the kingdom of God for sowing and reaping. And some of us are going to sow. Some of us are just going to be there to prepare the soil. But that's it. And they are equally important. Well, what happened to Isaiah? Over 700 years later, we come to Acts chapter 8. And at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, after persecution in Jerusalem, because that was God's way of getting them to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, and God used a bad thing for good, Philip is one of those who was scattered and he went to Samaria, preached the gospel, and revival broke out. You can read of that in Acts chapter 8 and verses 4 to 8. And then in the midst of this revival, we read in Acts chapter 8 and verse 20. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went. In fact, some translations say this is a deserted city. On two counts, that is an unreasonable request. Unreasonable, number one, there was revival breaking out in in Samaria and wasn't it his responsibility to walk with the newborn Christians? to appoint leadership, and to stick it out for the long term. Secondly, if you read that command, God said, get up, go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he went up and went. God did not tell him the reason why. So he went. That to me is incredible. He went without knowing why. But he had learned the principle of being sent. This is a number of things in this passage about God's way of leading in our lives. Number one, sometimes God gives us a compass, but not a map. Sometimes he gives a compass, but not a map. And he says, here's the direction. He gives us enough information, enough guidance to get us going in the direction, but he doesn't give us the details beforehand. Sometime, I think we should be thankful he doesn't. Could have prevented us from going in the first place. Secondly, God leads us to something and hence from something. Too often we're going to something, but it's, or excuse me, sometimes we're going from something, but we're not going to something. God has a reason why he leads us on. And normally, I would say to somebody, don't leave, whatever that may mean, don't leave until you know in God's eyes you're going to something. But don't just leave something. 
Number three, it teaches me that God always takes the responsibility for the consequences of my obedience. And lastly, to this generation, you know, leadership has a lot of discussion right now about dealing with this new generation. Uh, Usually we call them millennials. We used to call them human beings. Now they're millennials. And sometimes it is, well, people don't want to commit to something long term. Let me say this. For those of us in a post, who grew up in a post-war generation like me, I did not have opportunities that young people have today. They have a plethora of opportunities, and the challenge is, which one should I take? Because there's so much open to them. Past generations... You know, your family, your community, that that determined your career path pretty soon and for long term. This generation is not living like that. And so people like me need to back off, breathe through our nose, just walk with them and understand this. But the second thing that I would say to that generation is this. Don't fear God's guidance, and in particular, your obedience to that guidance, chooses the best first. You don't have to worry about something else better coming along. God always chooses the best first. So you go with him, and you're in the best. Read in Acts chapter 8 and verse 27, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, And he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning and his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And God says, go up, run alongside the Mercedes. And Philip did, and he asked a very simple question. Do you understand what you're reading? And the guy said, no, I don't. Would you help me? And lo and behold, he gets into this. And on his iPad, Philip takes a look, and he is reading Isaiah chapter 53. It's like the four spiritual laws of the Old Testament. There couldn't be a more clear vision of Christ than Isaiah chapter 53. And he preaches Christ to him. The guy says, look, there's some water over there. Can I be baptized? And Philip says, baptizes him. And when he comes out of the water, God beams Philip over to Azotus, which is on the Mediterranean coast. And he never saw the Ethiopian as far as we know. And the navigators would say, that is bad follow-up. But for Philip, it was right. And when you lead people to take care of them. I brought a verse this morning. And it's Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. I love this. He says, for we are his workmanship created Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And the word workmanship in my translation here, New American Standard, is actually the Greek word from which we get the English word poem. I can write a message to my staff in bullet points, 
but you can, always, you can also communicate information through a poem. And a poem is a reflection of the creativity, the ability, who wrote it. And so we think of Tennyson, of Frost, of Shakespeare, of, of uh, Goethe, etc. Why? Because it's a reflection of their ability. And God is, God is a poem. If you look up here, I tend to be results-oriented. And I'm here, and God has a goal over here. I'm interested. Let's get the job done. Yes, we should. And that's pointing to. But God is just as interested in the way there because the way there is a reflection of his glory and his ability as well. So it's not just how things, excuse me, just that, but how they get done and the way that they get done is also a reflection of the character of Christ. And that's why his good works include long periods of time, sometimes some testing, sometimes unlikely candidates, because through all of that, Jesus wants to make sure that he is known through it. I was uh, with Gabi in Holland this past fall, and a friend of ours gives tours of Corey Ten Boom House. Corey Ten Boom and her family were taken to a concentration camp during the war. Her family was murdered there. She lived through it, and then the Lord sent her around the world to speak of Christ. And at the table, we actually had dinner at the Ten Boom family table, only we knew our friend. There was this, this... uh, tapestry in a, a, a frame right next to the table. And I brought a picture of it. And you look at this tapestry, and I'm sorry that it's so small, but you look at that tapestry, and it's a frayed uh, fabric and, and, and threads, and it doesn't look very nice. But you turn the tapestry around and you see this on the other side. She used to take that with her and remind her audience this. We live on the back side of that tapestry. We see a lot of chaos, a lot of seemingly unrelated events, have questions as to why things happen the way they do. What we see is chaos. What the Lord sees is a pattern that he is using my life to establish. And I may never see pattern until the day that I'm with Jesus. And so, remember this. I just put it this way. The master never wastes his servant's time. I went to Bodensio in 1984. Uh, I was invited to join the staff there. And that meant I was going to learn German. And so I went to language school for two months in southern Bavaria. It was very... Came back uh, that fall, started on staff. And we do a lot of outreach with our s- students at Bodensio. In fact, it's, it's possible in Germany because religious education is still... Comp- to go into religion class and give a very, very clear testimony of Christ in public schools. And God has opened a door for us. And in January of 1986, got a phone call from the director of our center, and he was not well. 
and he was supposed to leave with a group of students that day to northern Bavaria, and he said, you're going to need to go in my place. In a matter of two hours, I had packed my bags, and I was driving a van up to northern Bavaria, scared to death because I'd never had to leave an out- lead an outreach like this. We got there, and the meetings were called. They weren't in a church. And the center graciously sent the secretary with me to translate me when I spoke. And at the end of the first meeting, this was in a public hall, Bavarians uh, served their refreshments to us after the meeting. And, you know, we're serving... I don't know how many beer that night, and all of a sudden, some of the guys felt a strong call to the ministry in Germany. And I'm thinking, this is going to end up in chaos. Well, you know, we did the program. We sat there with people. We had another meeting on Saturday night, and we got there. Same thing happened. And uh, I gave a short message, was translated. Uh, the refreshments came out again. And uh, lined up, you know, beer tables and, and benches in this hall. And because I was the leader of this team, I was supposed to set an example and just engage in conversation with the people who came. And at tables, there was a seat across from a young man who looked about my age. And so I went over there and I sat down and I said, Guten Abend, ich heiße Peter, hat dir das Programm heute Abend gefallen? And with that sentence, basically exhausted my knowledge of the German language. <laughs> I just said, my name is Peter, how would you like the program? He looked at me and said in the English, hello, my name is Paul. I rather enjoyed the program this evening. Could you tell me more about Jesus? He had been on his way to the bakery that morning, a small German town in northern Bavaria, and there were some students walking on the other side of the road who, let's just say, were a little bit louder than the people who live in the village. And so he heard English. He was bicultural. He was part, part of his parents, uh, I don't know if it was, it must have been his father, was German. His mother was English. And he had come back from Britain to work at Siemens, heard these students speaking English, said, what are you doing? He told him, invited him to the program. And he said, well, that's why I'm here. Because <laughs> they were speaking so loud in my village. Would you tell me about Jesus? Well, I got out my English Bible, and I presented him as best I could. And I said, you know, Paul, we could go into another room if you want to receive Christ. He said, no, I want to do that right here. So there we were in the beer hall, and this guy prays to receive Christ. It was a direct hit. Two thousand fifteen I get a letter. And it read this way. Hi Peter. Well, this is a certainly a blast from the past. I woke up in the middle of the night with an urge to contact you after so many years. Thinking good since we saw each other that night in Redwitz on january tenth, nineteen eighty six. Wow, almost thirty years. 
God is good, God is great, that's all I can say. When I reflect on the past, I sometimes feel so humble, called me to himself. He has blessed me with a wonderful wife and two fabulous kids. He has led me through some very deep valleys and set me up on some great heights. Praise God. I often think about that outreach weekend, and I realize that it was all God's time your team were there and shared the gospel. I still remember vividly the conversation that we had in that crowded community hall after the program, and you posed the, the question to me, or, and the question you posed to me, discussion. How do I know I'm a Christian? Because Christ lives in me. You see, when somebody gets a real thing, God will take care of them. God will take care of them. Brought a picture of me and Paul and the secretary back in January 1986. God likes to write a poem. And of course, it's easy to conclude that thing to do with my seminary degree or my ability to evangelize. It seems in my case that the Lord uses lack of as his for me to meet people with hungry hearts. And so because of my lungs, I have been twice to Davos, Switzerland, where they have this World Economic Forum, and once to the island of Borkum in northern Germany. Go to these clinics, you're there for four or five weeks, and they assign you a place in the dining hall. You don't get to choose, they assign you a place. So you walk in, and I sat down across from a man, looked a little bit older than I was, he was a private patient, that told me something about his economic situation. My insurance covered mine. And you either look at each other for silence, three meals a day, for weeks, or you engage in a conversation. So we just started to make small talk. And he realized, because usually people do, that I haven't grown up in Germany because of my accent. And he said, what do you do in Germany? And I said, well, um, at that time I was principal of a Bible school and I work at this Christian conference center. Really? Tell me about that. And in a very natural way, I just told him about what Christ has done in my life and my family. And we sat there week after week. Eventually, he left. He said, can I take you out for a cup of coffee? This has been very, very meaningful for me. I didn't know what. Took him out for, he took me out for a cup of coffee. He left, never saw him again. I think it must have been a year, maybe two later, a pastor from the Black Forest called me up, and he said, you don't know me, but you met somebody out of my church parish in Davos. Came back from Davos, he stormed into my office and he said, I need Jesus. This man was a believing man and he shared with Christ with this man. And, uh, and he was calling me because a few days before his call, somebody walked into this man's place of work and found him dead on the floor. He had died of a heart attack. And he was to ask me to summarize the content of our conversations so that he could use that at the funeral service. This is a picture of that man who I met in Davos. You see, sometimes God has a sense of timing and he brings us to a point where our heart is hungry and we're ready to receive him. 
And it could be that this weekend is serving as that God-appointed moment, as in the life of the Ethiopian eunuch, as in the life of Northern Bavaria, or in the life of my friend here who I met at the lung clinic in Switzerland. And nobody knows from the outside what goes on in the human heart, but sometimes there is a point in time where the Lord of the universe makes it very, very clear, I love you, I want you. And he invites us to receive his son as our Lord and Savior. And I often put it in this way. It says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So while we were yet sinners, he loved us. When I got married to Gabi, the pastor asked me first, do you want to take Gabi as your lawfully wedded wife? And I said, yes, I do. He said, yes, I do. Gabi runs out of the church and says, finally, we're married. Let's party. I would have been deeply offended because it takes two to say yes to one another to form a marriage covenant. Jesus Christ has said yes to you and to me. And even if it was only one person on this earth, he would have come, died on the cross, provided a way of redemption to be his, to establish a relationship with me and him for time and eternity. And it could be that you've been brought here this weekend, even by a friend, and some may not have even known what this weekend was about. Maybe you haven't understood everything in the Bible studies because that's a foreign book to you. I understand that. But it could be that during this time, hearing the other guys share what Christ is in their life, that a desire has been arising in your heart which says, I'd like Jesus too. It's very simple. You come and say yes to the one who's already said yes to you. On the basis of that illustration of going to the emergency room in Colorado and say, Lord Jesus, I don't want to live any longer without you. I thank you that you came to pay the price to redeem my life. And I thank you that you've risen from the dead to come and indwell me by your spirit to make me a child of God. Please do so today. And so what I'd like to do right now, I'm not going to call anybody forward. I'm not going to ask you to stand up or raise your hand. I'm just going to ask us did on the first evening. Just pause silently. And in a word of prayer, in the silence of this moment, God understands the desires of our hearts. And if this is your day, I would and say, Lord Jesus, I come to say yes to you. Have my life and come in and make me a child of God. Father, I thank you that you hear the cry of the I want to thank you that by your spirit, your spirit that we're a child of God. And where somebody this morning has come honestly and humbly and said, Lord Jesus, come yes to you. Come into my life. I'd simply ask that you would honor that by confirming in their heart by your spirit that they're your child. I'm to you. 
We thank you for the word bear fruit in the days to come. And we don't ask you to go with us. We thank you that you do. We pray this in your name. Amen.